1: Hello and welcome to Saving Lives in Slow Motion. Today, I'd like to talk about gut symptoms. Now, those of you that listen to the podcast regularly will know that I'm in the middle of a series of episodes that relate to the book that I'm releasing next year called The Health Fix, And last week's episode was on prejudice and inclusion, which was a bit of a diversion, but still linked to how we feel as human beings and how it affects us. So I thought it was important to cover that. Today I'm going um, the other way, and I'm going very much more in the medical direction and focusing on gut symptoms. Why am I doing that? Because they're so common. That is the real reason. So there was a survey by Mintel, um, which is a big consumer and marketing intelligence agency that published reports. And in 2016, they published a report that said 86% of Brits have suffered from a gastrointestinal problem in the past year. 86%, that's almost nine out of 10 people. And I'm going to make, a I always say never assume, but I'm going to make a bit of an assumption that people know the basics of For example, if you get heartburn, most people know that they need to slow down in terms of their eating and avoid spicy foods and alcohol and all that stuff. So I'm not going to cover the super basics. I'm just going to really, in a way, do a tour of the gastrointestinal system and why symptoms can manifest for reasons that may not be immediately obvious. Now, I'm going to cast my mind back about 25 years And one afternoon I was sitting in a pub called The Distillers in Hammersmith in London with two friends at med school. And we were trying to predict what the most prevalent symptoms might be in the future. So in 25 years time where we are now. And one of us, um, not me, actually thought it would be gastrointestinal symptoms because of the rise in fast foods and convenience foods and you know alco pops as as they were at that time the other thought it would be respiratory conditions because of pollution and i was looking more in terms of specialties and thought that the busiest one would become general practice because more work was being pushed out of hospitals and actually in in some way all three of us were right so if we start there with a very broad brush picture in terms of the world that we live in what most people eat and differences across the world. The first thing is that many of us know is that any food that is processed is not good for us. Let's just start with that. How is it not good for us? Lots of ways. Firstly, the processing takes out a lot of the nutrients in the food. Secondly, it makes it harder to digest. For thousands of years, our bodies have been used to eating in inverted commas real food so you know think crops that come out of the ground or if you're a meat and fish eater then cooked meat and fish and if you imagine um, eating a highly processed food our immune systems our gut you know they're not really designed to recognize those things and as a result it's likely that there'll be some sort of reaction whether that's heartburn or bloating or immune dysfunction you know your immune system signals going wrong because they're essentially getting the wrong messages on the flip side of that if you eat certain foods like vegetables for example going back to that concept of real foods there's a whole load of machinery within us, um, receptors I'm thinking of in particular, that really have some beneficial effects on our immune system. So one of them, for example, is called your aryl hydrocarbon receptor, or AHR. And these are commonly found in our intestine. And the more these receptors are stimulated, and the way to do that is the simplest way is through diet, the bigger the impact, the beneficial impact on our immune system. And that in turn means that we get less inflammation and are less likely to go on and develop conditions like inflammatory bowel disease, for example. So, you know, actually, AHR has become a potential target for therapeutics for drug companies to see if there is a way of, as drug companies do, manipulating this into something that is 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 actually therapeutic and will actually help prevent or treat certain conditions. Now I've gone in quite deep there because I think all of us know that if we eat better we feel better but sometimes it's just nice to know a bit more detail about what's going on and if we stick with that for just a second one of the things that activates the aryl hydrocarbon receptor or AHR is something called butyrate Um, and butyrate is an example of a short-chain fatty acid, something that's produced by the gut when dietary fibre is fermented. So, if you're eating fruit and whole grains and beans um, or broccoli, you know th- this type of food actually will activate those aryl hydrocarbon receptors in the gut. And why that's important is because that then has a beneficial effect on your gut flora. And as I've mentioned before in other episodes, your gut flora is effectively the the food for your immune system, 70% of which is in the gut. So I hope I'm not losing you here, but I'm just trying to talk you through the kind of thinking behind, I guess, what we eat and why it's important, just for this part anyway. Okay, so going back to the top, when we eat food, Um, the first thing that happens is we chew it. And that chewing activity releases something called salivary amylase. Salivary amylase is an enzyme that breaks down carbohydrates. And so the first step in eating is to make sure that we chew our food well. Sounds really obvious, but given the, the rate at which we do things in the modern world, um, often easier said than done. I know so many people, including my my old self, that used to just hoof food down. And the way I try and eat now is that I will not take another mouthful until the first one has really sort of reached the bottom of my stomach, um, or I can feel that I've actually swallowed and, and finished a mouthful completely. So once that bit is over, um, our stomach and our pancreas and our small intestine make digestive enzymes. So these are proteases, lipases, amylases, um, nucleases, all of them do something slightly different. So lipases will digest fats, Um, proteases do the same for proteins and they break down food into smaller constituent parts. And alongside all of these key players is our gallbladder. and most of us know the gallbladder stores bile and then releases it to digest fats, but it also has another key function that is often overlooked. And the long and short of it is if you don't have decent gallbladder function, and that can be for for many reasons, um, the quality of your bile won't be working further along in your small intestine. And bile is also antimicrobial, as in it keeps the balance of bacteria in the small intestine healthy so to give a, an extreme example of this if if i was to clamp off my gallbladder so that bile could not move further down into our duodenum and I, there'll be links on this below and one of the reasons i'm doing this is if i go through how things are meant to work it's much easier for us to understand why we get symptoms in the first place so if if that there is no bile, then you're going to end up with an overgrowth of bad bacteria, and you may end up with a condition called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Now, that is often an underlying cause for irritable bowel syndrome. So, those of us who have ever experienced IBS type symptoms, one potential cause of this is something called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. I'll post a link to this. But one of the underlying causes of SIBO, as it's known, is if your gallbladder isn't working particularly well. Um, And a hallmark symptom of SIBO is immediate bloating after meals. I don't know how many of you get that, but it's fairly common in my clinical practice. There are also lots of other causes of SIBO people who've had lots of antibiotics over the years, um, anything that can upset the balance of good versus bad bacteria, that balance um, in the small intestine. So all of our digestion in the true sense, in terms of absorbing nutrients and getting all the good stuff out of food, whatever we've eaten or drunk, finishes in the small intestine. And then after that, anything residual moves into the large intestine. So this will essentially include indigestible fibre and any sort of waste products that we don't need, which obviously we then defecate, pass as faeces. Okay, so that that was a very quick tour. You might need to re-listen to that again because I've really raced through it purely because of time constraints. Now let's think about symptoms. So the common ones I see are heartburn, bloating, pain, and of course some red flag symptoms like rectal bleeding which must always be taken seriously. And just while we're on that, I have to stress that this doesn't replace any medical advice. If you are losing weight or you've got a symptom that is not resolving, please, please seek medical advice. So just to simplify things, I think my episode on how, what and when really applies here. If you think about your gut and you think about eating, the how, what and when of your eating is important to drill down on. And sometimes just keeping a diary will give you clues as to things that suit your gut and things that don't. What's quite interesting is people with IBS often go on a low FODMAP diet, which works fairly effectively. But if you look at FODMAPs um, and foods that are forbidden, if you like, on a low FODMAP diet, they are actually some of the healthiest foods on the planet. And purely because they they tend to make gas in the large intestine, particularly on the right-hand side, Um, if you go on a low FODMAP diet, you you get less bloating, so IBS symptoms are reduced. But occasionally, as I said before, the underlying cause may well be SIBO, which can be quite hard to treat and isn't always acknowledged, actually, certainly in in general practice. And, And historically, in my experience, also by one or two gastroenterologists. So a lot of people have ended up taking private tests for it online, breath tests, which will will confirm whether they've got SIBO or not, can be quite challenging to treat as well. So going back to the big picture again, and how we started when I was talking about the aryl hydrocarbon receptors, um, there is a tribe that is often talked about called the Hadza tribe in Tanzania, who have a very high fibre diet and have up to 800... different types of plants in their diet. Now, I don't know about you, but I can only name about eight, (laughs) let alone 800. But the point is um, they have a very low rate of disease when it comes to the gut or their immune system, you know, autoimmunity. And that's likely to be no coincidence. It's because of what I said before, how, you know, these food food effectively sends signals to these receptors that have an effect on our immune systems. And the longer that you're, send, you're, you're getting the right signals through, the better your health is going to be. It makes sense, you know, and the longer you're sending you know, the wrong signals via highly processed food or whatever it is, stress, smoking, alcohol, um, the more likely the immune system is to go wrong. Pretty basic in a way. So when it comes to ourselves, one of the things that it's important to do, apart from looking at the how, what, and when and our typical day, which is very much in the now, is to really look back at our own stories. So, you know, if you're born premature, not, breastfed, um, have a load of antibiotics when you're young, those three factors alone will potentially prime your gut um, to be a bit more sensitive than, than someone who doesn't have those factors. Um, all All of those factors that I've just mentioned have an effect on gut flora. And so years down the line, when someone's in their 20s or 30s, Um, that story can manifest, you know, once you add other things in, like dietary habits or lifestyle habits, um, which, which change throughout life, suddenly one day a symptom manifests, and it can be anything from acid reflux, you know, heartburn, to bloating after meals, to having loose stools. And a really useful tool, I think, you know, if that is happening for you, Um, is to keep a diary. A food diary really, really helps drill down on the story. A lot of people ask me about probiotics. I'm a fan of them, particularly after courses of antibiotics. And if you have got that story of poor flora, it is something that you should consider, in my opinion. Okay, so we've covered quite a lot there. I just want to come back to one thing, and that is. I I do not want to suggest for a minute that no one should ever eat anything unhealthy, because A, that's unrealistic, and B, sometimes occasions are there to be enjoyed. So, again, this is personal opinion, but unless it's absolutely off the menu because you have an allergy to it, um, you know, if it's your birthday, eat cake um, if you have a special day at the seaside planned with your grandparents or your parents, if you've got children, so it's their grandparents, then taking a walk down the pier and eating fish and chips is a special memory. So do it. You know, I'm not saying for a minute that there's any room for absolutism here. Um, there are factions. I mean, this is the the difficulty about talking about the gut because obviously it's so linked to nutrition, But just think for a minute how important stress and sleep are in terms of what your gut does. They've got nothing to do with food directly. Um, And so, you know, although I've talked a lot about the gut and a little bit about food, it's important not to get too hung up about it unless there is a very specific problem. Now, I know a lot of people won't agree with me, and some people just need rules, you know, um, and if you're one of those people, I respect that because, you know, I, I'm a moderation person. So what would make me not be one? Well, if I had um, a condition that meant that I, I absolutely couldn't eat a certain food, so an allergy, for example, or celiac disease is another good example. Or if you know yourself too well, that you are someone who cannot actually function as without rules so if you're the kind of person that thinks you know what i cannot drink alcohol because if i have one glass on a saturday night then that becomes two and then i'll have some on sunday night and then monday night and then tuesday night and then you're suddenly drinking again i totally understand that and so if you know yourself well enough and you think hey you know what i need some rules i don't drink alcohol i don't eat x or y good for you but what annoys me is when that group of people don't have respect for people that do dip in and out um and you know there's room for us all and i guess what i'm saying is don't have fish and chips every night um have it on an occasion or you know sometimes hey you know what you've had a tough week it's friday night fish and chips great Eighty-twenty, yin and yang Um, that's where I'm at. Okay, so um, lots to take in there. I guess to summarise, the basic premises that I want to leave you with beyond the super basic ones that I assumed people know about are chew your food, eat slowly, think about your life story and all of the things I mentioned that might be colluding to manifest gut symptoms at some point in your life? Is there anything that you can do about them? And finally, I'm going to leave you um, to look at something in the show notes, in the links, which is called the four R's. And it's, it's come from a background of nutritional therapy and the four R's stand for remove, replace, re-inoculate and repair. Now I've got to stress here: I am I'm not a gastroenterologist. I'm a GP, and I don't have that deep knowledge that a specialist has. But you know, when you're when you're actually on your own as a person or a patient, or a practitioner like myself who is dealing with lots of people who where, you know where the serious stuff has been ruled out by the the clever guys in hospital because they've had a normal endoscopy, they're on medication, it hasn't worked you're stuck and you've got to do something and actually a really really useful tool and you know it's probably not evidence-based is the four r's it's something i'd like you to think about and it's very simple the remove bit means take away anything that you know that is aggravating your gut um for example a bit like the fodmaps replace means eat food that agrees with you and is, is generally healthy. So a simple one for that might be getting rid of the highly processed stuff and replacing it with in inverted commas real food. Reinoculate is, is about improving your gut flora. You don't necessarily need to do anything particular apart from eat foods that are going to you know nourish your, your own healthy bacteria. And again, a lot of those foods are plant-based um, as we discussed earlier. And the last R is repair, which is, is normally to do with nutrients that support the digestive tract. But, you know, the jury's out there. And I think the difficulty with this is that people always question where the evidence for this is. But it's actually a very logical tool. You know, you're getting rid of stuff that aggravates your gut and you're adding in stuff that nourishes it. It's not rocket science. You do not need grade one evidence for this stuff it's a bit like you know someone whether it's your hairdresser or a doctor or a nutritional therapist or a dietitian saying you know what you're better off eating an apple um than a portion of chips unless of course you're allergic to apples but um so you know take it in context and think about whether it applies to you whether you even need to do this um But I think it's just a a very simple, elegant tool that I'm a fan of. Okay, there's loads of quotes on the gut that you're going to know. You know, gut's your second brain, the gut is the key to all health, all that stuff. I get all of that and, you know, even if I agree with it, there's no point in, in finishing on something like that. What I will leave you with is just a thought about why the gut seems to be so important and... Who knows? There's no one answer for that. But if you just think about the scale of the gut on the inside, um so the estimate is that if you laid out all the tissues in the gut and and remember the inside of the gut is a mucous membrane. and by that by that terminology, uh, what it means is that that, particular area, so this is like the inside of your mouth or the inside of your lungs or the inside of your bladder, you know, the the lining of your insides if you like, um, do a number of things. They absorb, they digest and they secrete. So ultimately it's a protective layer. But the gut has around 30 square metres worth which is huge. Around the size of Of you know half a tennis court so that is a large surface area that is responsible for some very very important functions and if you just think about that then it helps us put it into context i think why the gut is so important okay i've really gone on there i'm so sorry because these are meant to be 10 minute episodes and i know my um podcast producer joel will be very annoyed with me um but um listen it's an important topic it affects so many people i hope that's been helpful do have a look at the show notes and the links because that's where the added learning is you know this kind of conversational stuff is great and it just gets you thinking i hope but for some deep dive stuff do have a look at the links in the meantime it's been a pleasure thank you so much again for listening I will be connecting with you again very shortly, but in the meantime, do stay well, take care, and bye for now.